This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to Trumpet Hour. Today is Friday, December 15th, halfway through the day as you're hearing us and halfway through December and almost completely through the year 2023 on the Roman calendar. Thank you for joining us this Friday and every Friday and as well as on Wednesdays for our midweek show whence we discuss particular news and particular trends in detail. This week we focused on a specific article that Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry emphasized last weekend You need to pay special attention to that particular article. So we did a segment on it with uh, Josue Michels, the author of that article. Just received an email this morning, actually, from a listener who heard that segment and researched the group that we talked about, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. And the name of that article is Who is Defining Disinformation? That's in the January 2024 trumpet. So if you want to hear from the author of that article, you can listen to the Wednesday show. Uh, We also expanded the idea of news and trends to include the entire concept of architecture in a discussion with Sam Livingston on uh, our second segment from the Wednesday show. So that's what the Wednesday show is about. But the Friday show is about bringing you up to date with what happened this week, what the latest news is from four different regions of the world. And this week, we're going to begin with the region of Asia. Jeremiah Jacques, good day to you, sir. Hello there. What is the rundown of the top stories from Asia this week? Yeah, first a quick one here about Russian President Vladimir Putin. We spoke last week about how Western support for Ukraine is beginning to splinter and how this was uh, causing a lot of rejoicing among Russians. Well, yesterday, Putin gave a big press conference, the first one of this kind that he's held since the start of the war back in February 2022, and his joy over America's faltering support and his kind of, you know, renewed confidence were very apparent. Putin seems to have gotten a major psychological boost from seeing, um, you know, the West seeming to back down and start to consider abandoning Ukraine. And in this speech, Putin actually reaffirmed his maximalist goals over Ukraine. So during times when Russia is on the back foot, you'll often hear the Russians say that they only want to hold on to what they currently have the Donbass and Crimea, and they'll call for peace talks. But now that the U.S. is possibly bugging out, Putin is back to saying, no, we don't want a ceasefire. We plan to keep on fighting and we will take all of Ukraine. He said that uh, Russia currently has 617,000 troops in Ukraine, which is a far larger number than we've heard before. And he emphasized his ongoing commitment to, quote, demilitarize the whole nation. At one point he said, There is enough for us not only to feel confident, but to move forward. So, you know, Putin is emboldened and he appears to have a a really renewed determination. And then another important Russia story here, Alexei Navalny is a Russian politician who's considered to be Putin's number one critic. He's, uh, He's said to be the man who Putin fears most since Navalny has exposed a lot of Putin's corruption over the years. Although I don't think Putin has feared him very much since last year when he had Navalny imprisoned on these, you know, trumped up charges. But now Navalny is suddenly missing. He's missing from the prison system. His lawyers can't locate him um, and no one can say where he is. One major prison database showed that he's not even listed 
on their uh, you know roster of all the prisoners anymore. So I think it's been nine or ten days now that Navalny has been MIA. And his disappearance comes just a few days after Navalny had issued a call from his cell for Russians to vote for anyone but Putin in the upcoming presidential election. So, you know, he may still turn up. Maybe he's being transferred from one one facility to another. But it's looking more and more like Putin may have decided that imprisonment in the gulag wasn't enough, especially after that call for, you know, Russians to go out and vote against Putin. And and it looks like this opposition figure may be totally silenced now. He was the same one that was poisoned. I think it was on a flight or something like that. And he got super sick. And then they found that the poisoning agent was something that only a few governments have access to. So they assumed it was a, a poisoning directly by the Russian government that the Russian government didn't mind being traced back to. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yes, that was a high-profile poisoning, I think, in uh, 2021 or 22. But yeah, it had Putin's fingerprints all over it. It's, it's one of these things where Putin will still not claim responsibility, but the nature of this nerve agent that was used makes very clear that only a state actor, somebody at the highest levels right. with access to the, you know, the nuclear programs and, and all that, right. um, would have been able to do it. So it's stunning to me that after that poisoning happened, Navalny decided to return to Russia. Everyone said, why would you go back? And immediately upon his return, that's when he was imprisoned. He, he's been incarcerated for uh, well over a year now. And he just had, I think, 11 more years added to his sentence right before he disappeared. So it's been a, it's been a terrible situation for this guy. And his true crime, from what I can tell, is only that he tried to expose Putin's corruption. You know, he's no saint as far as politicians go and all that. But but as far as I can tell, all of the, um, I think it's uh, embezzlement charges that he's officially incarcerated for, and there's no proof that any of that was true. It's only that he opposed Putin politically and exposed the corruption of Putin and his cronies. Right. Like you said before, this isn't so much about Navalny as it is about Putin and how boldly he is asserting his power. Your main story takes us from Russia over to China. That's right. Yes. The big story is about China's deepening influence in Latin America. So this has been a development that's been underway for over a decade now with China, you know, making all kinds of deals with the, the countries in Latin America, helping these nations build railways, highways, ports, electric plants, and all kinds of other infrastructure projects. Um, these projects are usually under the branding of the Belt and Road Initiative. That's China's plan to just better connect the world to Beijing with the goal of really making everyone more dependent on China. And with each one of these projects in Latin America, the Chinese are establishing more and more economic and political influence in the region. And that's a region that has generally been considered part of America's sphere of influence. And so this week, the big story is about Peru and a huge port that China's building there. This port is in the city of Chongqing, and uh, China is building this you know, port there for container ships, and it's designed to function as an economic beachhead for China in Latin America. There was a report published about this on Wednesday, and it said phase one of the project is now more than 50% complete. So you know, China's influence in Latin America has already been steadily growing over the years, but this new port is expected to bring that to a whole new level. 
the main Chinese company that's building this is Costco Shipping, and their institutional affairs manager said the Newport will turn Peru into, quote, the gateway from South America to Asia. So it's a, it's a massive project, and it's about a lot more than just China being able to trade with Peru. This port is supposed to become a, a major hub for Brazil. Brazil is, of course, a massive economy, the world's seventh largest right now. And, uh, and trade between China and Brazil at present either has to go up into the Atlantic, then uh, through the Panama Canal and finally across the Pacific, or they just route it the other way, sailing under Chile there at the Cabo de Hornos. But this new port in Peru will change all of that because there's also a railway that's going to con- connect it to Brazil. And that means Brazil-China trade will be far more efficient. Once the Chinese-built port is completed, companies will be able to travel from Chaque, Peru, to Asia in 30 days. That's 15 days faster than today's traditional routes through the Panama Canal or the Cabo de Hornos. That was the South China Morning Post there, pointing out just what a game changer this is for boosting trade between China and Latin America. The report goes on to mention that it's not just Peru and Brazil that will be pulled much deeper into China's orbit by this, but also Colombia, Ecuador, and Chile as well. So just a colossal project that's shifting the world's center of gravity more toward China. And the stunning fact is that Peru is just one of over 100 countries that have signed on to China's Belt and Road Initiative. More than 100 countries across Asia, Africa, the Middle East, Europe, and Latin America are building things like this with China. And it's, it's uh, laying the groundwork for just a huge trade alliance that includes so much of the world, really almost all the big players, with the notable exception of the United States. That's Costco building a massive new port in Peru. Costco doesn't sound intimidating because it sounds like an American company. <laughs> it's not. China Ocean Shipping Company is what Costco stands for. And not only is it a Chinese company, it is a Chinese company controlled by the Chinese government, directly controlled. There's like these different levels of control that the Chinese Communist Party has over pretty much all companies in China. This is a directly controlled company that has the Monroe Doctrine well in the rearview mirror and is just coming right into a continent that's supposed to be free of intervention from Europe or Asia. No longer the case. No longer the case. You said there's about 100 involved in this market of nations. Yeah, it's the, the Belt and Road Initiative was rolled out. Um, this is I think we're right at the 10-year anniversary of the project now. And in that decade, more than 100 nations, I think it's around 120, have signed on for various projects. You know, it seems like quick, easy money coming from China. So they say, yeah, let's let's sign up. And um, I think it's very fascinating that China is leading this block because there are prophecies in Isaiah 23 and Ezekiel 27 that talk about a mart of nations or an economic alliance that'll form between um, Asian countries, specifically China and Russia and many European nations as well. And when you put that alongside Deuteronomy 28.52, it's clear that the main reason this economic alliance will come together is to stand up to the United States and to actually block it out of world trade. Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has written quite a lot about these passages over the years 
especially in his book, Isaiah's End Time Vision. And he shows that this is basically how World War III will begin. It starts off with just trade, you know, trade alliances and, and uh, certain powers being blocked out. And he has drawn particular attention to Latin America in that book. He, he emphasized how the European nations already have a great deal of influence over many Latin American countries with the shared language, the shared religion. And he argues that once China and Russia enter into this brief alliance with Europe, then all the influence that China and Russia are now building in Latin America will translate into even greater European control over the region. So, you know, the story of this port in Peru is just a very small part of a, of a huge picture and a very expansive trend that's happening all over the entire world. It's, it's all about this anti-American trade alliance, and it points to some very dark times on the horizon. That was Isaiah's End Time Vision by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. I think we could call it a book. It's uh, one of the thicker ones. That's available to you at thetrumpet.com slash library. Isaiah's End Time Vision. And you think about not only how long these scriptures in the Bible have been there, but these particular interpretations of what they mean by Herbert W. Armstrong, by Gerald Flurry, and how much time has passed and how many nations are involved and how many different directions these things could go week to week, month to month, year to year. And the trumpet under Mr. Flurry and the plain truth under Mr. Armstrong stuck with these specific applications of these specific verses. You can find those explanations in Isaiah's End Time Vision, which is written decades ago, and in the plain truth and booklets by Herbert W. Armstrong, same forecast over, I would say, a lifetime at this point. Read that booklet. See if that's not what's happening in the news week to week, month to month from Asia and the other regions of the world. Now let's go to Mihailo Zekic. Hello, Mihailo. Good afternoon. It's later in the workday for you than it is for us. You're connecting to us from England and you finish your work week thinking about the Middle East region and giving us your report Please give us the things that have caught your eye this week from the Middle East. Yes, so a quick update on the war in Gaza. Israel is continuing to solidify its gains in the area. Gaza City, for all intents and purposes, is surrounded by Israel. It's cut off from the main Hamas government, shall we say. Israel has it, but at the same time, there's still areas in the Gaza City area that Israel doesn't fully control, so there's been skirmishes going on in in some of the neighborhoods there, uh, Israel is continuing to push into Khan Yunis, uh, that uh, large city in southern Gaza as well. There's been also a bit of a flurry of activity in the United Nations. We talked about uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres and what he did last week. That very day we recorded that episode, the United Nations Security Council acted on his proposal and tried to put in something to force a, a ceasefire to happen in Israel. 13 out of 15 members of the UNSC voted for it. Uh, the U.S. viewed it and the United Kingdom abstained. But that didn't stop the United Nations General Assembly, which doesn't have their resolutions don't have legal standing, or at least this one didn't. But of the 193 member states of the General Assembly, 153 voted to support it and only 10 voted against it. There were a few other abstentions and people that didn't bother showing up to the vote. But Considering that represents most of the population of the world, uh, the UN is not this faceless blob. It represents countries that represent real people, and that goes to show how 
far anti-Semitism is globally, if you, you could say that. We've talked a little bit about how these kinds of resolutions hurt Israel rather than bring any peace. And then finally this week, there's been quite a few news stories from Europe about uh, Hamas members being apprehended uh, before they could carry out terror attacks on Jewish targets in Europe. Three were captured in Germany. Uh, one was captured in the Netherlands on an extradition request, and three were captured in Denmark including two of the ones in Germany were in Berlin, the capital city. So what's happening in the Middle East is obviously having spillover in Europe. Uh, Europe's already small Jewish community is feeling more under threat. That's hurting citizens of these European countries. So by extension, the countries themselves are under attack in this case. And Europe's response to this crisis and how it's agitating these governments is certainly something we keep an eye on. I think that United Nations General Assembly vote and the remarks by the Secretary General, or not just the remarks, but the invocation of Article 99, is really a warning sign. The world sympathized with what happened to the Jews on October 7th for about 60 minutes, it seemed like. And then immediately there were the protests, the demonstrations. We had a trumpet brief yesterday about uh, how Harvard and University of Pennsylvania and I think it was MIT and many other universities reacted favorably toward Hamas, favorably toward the butchers of Jewish families. And it, it's almost been like the United Nations, which, as you say, represents the world <laughs> in a very real way. It's almost as if the discussions behind the scenes are just like, all right, we're going to oppose Israel. We're going to favor Hamas. Just what's the timing of it? And now it's time. Now it's time to come out and say we don't sympathize with the Jewish people, we throw a lifeline, as you put it, to Hamas and the Palestinians, even as they're planning attacks in Europe and in other places. It's just an egregious attitude that is worldwide that is reflected in, in what the United Nations is doing. You've got another story here for us to kind of focus in on also from the Middle East. Yes. Well, this one is also not just about the Middle East, but ties Europe and the Middle East together. We've spoken before about uh, the Houthis, the terror group in Yemen, and when they declared war on Israel. Well, last Saturday, they've decided to escalate their involvement in the war. Yemen and the Houthi-controlled part of Yemen obviously controls a sizable chunk of the Red Sea coastline. That's a major trade artery going from the Indian Ocean through the Suez Canal to Europe and vice versa. The Houthis' ability to impact Red Sea trade has been on people's minds for a long time now. On Saturday, they announced that they're going to make good on this leverage that they have and start disrupting trade in general in the Red Sea. If ships that are specifically that they're going to be targeting are going to dock in Israel, even if they're not Israeli owned, even if they're owned by foreign countries or outside countries. And they're making good on that threat as well. On December 12th, the Houthis fired at a Norwegian oil tanker in the Red Sea. The owners of the ship claimed that the ship wasn't going to Israel, but it's scheduled to dock at Israel's port of Ashdod uh, for next month. So that's probably where the Houthis got their information. Yesterday, another oil tanker flagged by the Marshall Islands was also attacked, and the U.S. Navy came to its rescue. And just today, I heard that a German-owned oil tanker was also attacked in the Red Sea by the Houthis. They obviously have a pretty impressive array of weaponry, missiles, anti-ship missiles, drones. A lot of the the Houthis are probably among the best armed terror groups, non-state groups in the world. I mean, at this point, they even control 
sizable parts of territory, so they might as well be a state in and of themselves. They're they're not a small fish. They're not these lone wolf guys throwing a Molotov cocktail at riot police. These guys can do attacks the same with the same kind of equipment countries can do attacks. This is a big deal, and this is again to disrupt the oil trade, to disrupt other trade, to get the rest of the world to tell Israel to back off of what what they're doing in Gaza is basically meant to put indirect pressure on the rest of the world to put pressure on Israel. And while the Houthis, again, are pretty far away from Israel, they can't necessarily do too much damage to Israel itself. They can exert this kind of pressure and this kind of economic harm to Israel and jab at them this way. And you can notice also that some of the people involved in these attacks are European and Europe is certainly paying attention to what the Houthis are doing and reacting to it. The same day the Houthis made their announcement, a French frigate shot down two Houthi drones over the Red Sea. And from Israel's part, obviously, they're pretty experienced in fighting Middle Eastern terrorists. They're not that experienced in operations in Yemen. They're asking for outside help. And Israeli media reported that they reached out to U.S. President Joe Biden and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz to deal with this. Uh, according to Israel's channel N12, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister, said to those men, if you don't act against them, we will. Why did they pick Biden? Well, you see why they picked Biden. I mean, the United States has a pretty sizable footprint in the Middle East. Biden's not Israel's best friend, but there's certainly a lot of middle management, shall we say, uh, figures in the army and the navy that probably would side with Israel. But Germany... I just mentioned France already has a presence in the Mediterranean. They didn't reach out to France. They didn't reach out to the United Kingdom. They didn't reach out e even to the Saudi Arabians, according to the Israeli media. They reached out to Germany. Since this war started, Germany has made itself look like Israel's best friend, while many other Western democracies have tried to tell Israel to hold back, to, uh, to get into a ceasefire, to stop the war. Germany has, for the most part, pretty unequivocal in its support and trying to help Israel, saying, Israel, just keep doing what you're doing. We've got your back 100%. Olaf Scholz looks like the best international partner Israel has with dealing with groups like the Houthis. Now, from the Houthis' part, it's important to note that they're an Iranian proxy. They're, uh, uh, in fact, there's even evidence suggesting that Iran may even play a more direct role in this than meets the eye. So you could almost see this as Iran, not if the Houthis messing around with Red Sea trade, messing around with Europe, importing its oil, and Israel looking to, of all countries, Germany to help them out. We'll see if Germany actually does anything about this. As I mentioned earlier, it was a German tanker among them that got attacked. But this is exactly what Bible prophecy was talking about for the longest time. Our editor-in-chief has been pointing to these kinds of scenarios playing out. There's a prophecy in Daniel chapter 11, verses 40 and 41, talks about a king of the north or a and a king of the south or Catholic Europe led by Germany and an Islamist group led by Iran clashing with each other. Our editor-in-chief has pointed to the Red Sea oil trade being a huge part of that. And you go to verse 41 and it speaks of Europe entering peacefully into the glorious land, the holy land, in the middle of this war with radical Islam. And the Hebrew indicates that it's a peaceable entry, as in Israel lets them in because they're looking to Europe as a protector against Iran, against everything they're doing with the oil trade, against everything that they're doing in the Middle East in general. And this is the exact scenario we're seeing happen right now. It probably won't be this particular uh, minor incident or incidents that morphs into what we're exactly looking for in the fulfillment of prophecy. But 
it's still a major step, and it certainly vindicates Mr. Fleury's words, what he's been prophesying and pushing for these past decades even. If our listeners would like to learn more for our latest print edition, our cover story by Mr. Fleury is called As You Watch Gaza, Watch Germany. That's As You Watch Gaza, Watch Germany. It doesn't talk about Yemen and everything going on there specifically, but the main focus of it is while everybody's looking at what the Palestinians are doing, what Israel's doing, what Iran's doing, don't forget about Germany. It doesn't look like it's a major player in this conflict. It is, and it's about to become an even bigger player in this conflict. Yeah, that's the trumpet.com. You can find the information you need there. The Red Sea, a crucial part of the world connecting, uh, in a way, Europe and, and somewhat Africa and uh, Asia. All the major powers, of course, uh, I think both sides, Russia, have bases or at least forces directly across the Bab el-Mandeb where one of those attacks took place. There where the Red Sea is only 16 miles wide. So a flashpoint for sure, and the world knows it. Keep your eye on what happens in the Red Sea and at that strait and what the Iranians are able to do through the Houthis and watch for just how much they're going to push. As Mihailo mentioned there, as you watch Gaza, watch Germany uh, is an article to check out, as well as the trumpet.com slash brief hearkening back to what we were saying about the United Nations. As I was saying that, I got an email today's trumpet brief with Mihailo's article, UN threatening Hamas means threatening, quote, international peace. So have a look at that on thetrumpet.com. You're listening to 101.3 KPCG, streaming online at thetrumpet.com. Coming up this week's update from Europe from Richard Palmer and from the United States from Andrew Miller. Stay with us. Listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Germany finally sorted out its budget mess this week. So you may recall Germany's Supreme Court struck down its budget. That was a just over a month ago. The uh, German constitution has strict limits on how much Germany can borrow. And what the government had done is it had taken money that was previously part of a COVID emergency fund and used it for basically climate funding and environmentalist measures. And the court stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. That's not an appropriate use of what the parliament had had approved for climate funds. It's against the constitution. That put things back to the drawing board. Over that last month, the party leaders have spent 200 hours in talks. They've stayed up all night on, on at least one occasion trying to get something hammered out. They finally did this week. It's still a bit of a fudge where a lot of the details are kind of unclear. So they're going to somehow raise some money from selling off shares in German transportation earned by the government or come up with some creative funding to get private sector investment into the German transportation industry. They're going to raise some environmental taxes. So there's going to be some tax on plastic. They're going to raise taxes on things like heating oil and gas that's used for heating homes. Given the kind of climate revolt going on in in Europe right now, I think that will make this government much less popular in the long run. And then also there's going to be a cut in spending largely on social and climate issues. So the fact that this was a major obstacle for the coalition government shows that we have a rickety coalition government, that if there's a crisis, you can't have a month and all night talks and all of these kind of things. And so I think that this 
is paving the way for this appetite for a strong leader within Germany. And then on Friday, the EU leaders agreed new regulation for artificial intelligence. It's a pretty typical European type of regulation in that it seems to be written in such a way that it very deliberately applies to American attempts at artificial intelligence while not putting the same onerous risk of fines and regulations on European artificial intelligence. So it's quite clearly an attempt to tilt the playing field in their favor and make sure that they emerge with a decent foothold in this segment. And this could be increasingly important for regulating what you say and do on the internet. And if artificial intelligence starts to play a role, you know, Microsoft, I think, are basically coming out with a Windows 12 next year in which artificial intelligence will be heavily integrated and featured. So this is something that businesses want to make a part of your everyday life. And by inserting themselves into this through regulation, well, that's another way for the European Union to try and make themselves a part of your everyday life and the way that you think and act and use the internet. I believe you covered both of those topics on the Trumpet Brief. Go to thetrumpet.com slash brief, and you'll get those updates as they come. Each of those, sure, we'll follow up on in the future with the trumpet.com slash brief, as well as regular stories there on the homepage, the in-briefs and the in-depths as well. You know, this country that you're going to focus on for the main story is one that I kind of compare to Ukraine in some ways, because a lot of people hadn't really been paying close attention to Ukraine. Now you see it every night on the news. You see it every time you log in. Everyone has some kind of opinion or at least some knowledge about Ukraine now. Another country that is perhaps just as important, major things going on there, not an outright war yet, of course, but the last world war started there or really broke open and erupted there. And I think we're going to be hearing more and more about it in the future. So what is that country and what news this week? Yes, that country is Poland, and they got a new prime minister this week. And the whole election saga is one that is, I think, fascinating. So they've got a new prime minister, Donald Tusk. He was voted in by parliament this week. The election took place in mid-October. So it's taken quite a while to get to this point. But the big takeaway is we have gone from Poland being the EU's problem child to being teacher's pet. It's been a massive turnaround for Europe and I think even more significantly, a massive turnaround for Germany. So the former government under the Law and Justice Party, they clashed repeatedly with both Brussels and Germany. So Poland's constitutional court ruled that part of the core European Union treaty was unconstitutional. Then the European Court of Justice responded by fining Poland 1 million euros per day, its heaviest ever penalty. That was back in 2001. And this discussion over Poland. This is over Poland's judiciary. The European Court of Justice say that the government is too involved in the selection of judges and that this is against EU law. It's been going back and forth since then. The law and justice parties, they've had leaders that have talked of, quote, drastic solutions. They've raised the prospect of Poland quitting the European Union. At the same time, the Polish government has been embracing this program that makes Poland a major military power, You know, literally buying hundreds, about a thousand tanks, They've got a stated aim of becoming like, Europe's largest military and, and largest military spender. So in a world where people are shoring up their defenses, they're a real heavyweight. So they're having this disagreement over the European Union. The new leader is Donald Tusk. And it's hard to come up with a more pro-European. Like, he is literally the former European Council president. 
in his accession speech this week, he said Poland will regain its position as a leader in the European Union. He is as pro-European as you can get. And the other massive turnaround is on Poland's attitude to Germany. So the Law and Justice Party have demanded 1.3 trillion euros in reparations from Germany over World War II. They've said that previous treaties don't adequately cover compensation for Germany's destruction of Poland during that war. As you can imagine, that does not make them popular within Germany. In 2021, the leader of that party, he accused Germany of trying to create a German Fourth Reich built on the basis of the EU. One of their election ads in this cycle showed Germany trying to boss Poland around and raise their retirement age with the the PIS leader, the Law and Justice Party leader saying, no way, you know, we don't just do what we say. This message of we'll stand up to Germany, whereas the other party are German puppets, was a key plank of their electoral campaign. He's also warned that Germany is planning to betray Ukraine in order to restore German relations with Russia. He said, if we Poles agreed to this kind of modern day submission, we would be degraded in different ways, very against Germany. He's not the only one. And as part of this, Poland has accused Germany of interfering in their elections, not in hacking voting machines, say, or or some of the uh, accusations that you'll see in the United States, but using Germany's vast publishing links. A lot of media outlets are owned by Axel Springer and other German publications. The fact that they lead the EU and that they're really the de facto power and control of the EU to sway the Polish elections. And you have seen evidence of this. There was a a scandal in the run-up to the election where corrupt individuals within Poland's government were caught basically selling Polish visas. And Germany really jumped on this. So the German chancellor talked openly about this. The European Parliament broke its own rules to hold an investigation into this during the election campaign. It's a strict European rule normally that you stay out of these issues within a certain window before an election so that the European Union cannot be accused of interfering in that election. So they got rid of that this time. There's a major report. It's a single source report, but it's still an interesting one, basically saying that Germany told Ukraine that the reason we can't invite you into NATO is Poland. And if you help us get rid of this Polish government, and if you help kind of paint them as the bad guys, you'll be paving the way for your EU membership. Now, I don't think Germany has any intention of offering Ukraine EU membership, but it's an interesting accusation. And relations with Ukraine played a key role, and a dispute with Ukraine played a key role in that election. So I think that's definitely an accusation that's worth investigating, even if it's not fully proven yet. And they did this, this newspaper did have some leaked documents to support that. So what you're seeing is really European and German intervention in a Polish election, albeit in, say, more legitimate ways than election hacking. These are things that, that this does happen, foreign leaders weighing in on a, a other countries' election, foreign press weighing in. But still, trying to tilt the scales against this party that they don't like and bringing in a much more pro-German candidate. And it looks like they've succeeded. And so this week, we've seen a complete radical turnaround in Polish relations with Germany as one prime minister leaves and a new one takes the scene. So here's an example of these powerful institutions, the German media plus the German political leader plus EU parliament, when they have a common goal and they swing into action, this is what it's like. 
And like you said, it, it was still up to the Polish voter, as far as we know. Um, and yet when, when those three things swung into action, they did get what they wanted, right? They did get a leader who is saying that Poland will be, you know, continue to be heavily involved in the European Union. So Germany controls the European Union. It got the leader it wanted in Poland. And in so doing, it's probably perfectly happy for Poland to have a very large military and a lot of military spending if it is compliant with the EU, if it is compliant with Germany. Obviously, you're watching this closely. You're watching for Germany to be expanding its power over other nations through the cloak of the EU. Tell us a little bit more about why you watch this closely and and whether this is a particularly big week. Yeah, this is a keynote prophecy of the Bible, but one that Herbert W. Armstrong talked frequently about that you would have Germany using the European Union, even though it wasn't called the European Union when he was making those forecasts, that they would use this to re-dominate Europe. And even in 1945, he was saying that Germany would use a kind of European Union to dominate Europe and bring Europe together. And so because of this, well, yeah, we watched the rise of German power very closely. And every few years, it seems like you have some pretty major examples. The financial crisis that Germany really leveraged to take control of Greece and Europe. And I think one of the articles that we wrote at that time was, look who rules Europe, because it exposed a reality that was already there, that Germany controls a lot of Europe. And I right. think that's what we saw this week already. It exposed a reality already there, that if you cross Germany, that they'll find a way of getting rid of you eventually. And yeah, I think Poland, it's a bit of a complicated situation in some ways because there is a lot about this Polish government that does match exactly what we expect for Europe to come. It's very Catholic. It is pretty militaristic. Yeah, I, I think there is a lot of things that this government does that is being blackened by the media and Germany has a very strong hand in that. There are also a few things that they are doing that are genuinely concerning in terms of restricting what you can say about history, what you can say about the Holocaust, for example. So, you know, I think this might not be the end for the Law and Justice Party. And maybe some of those things, particularly their close relationship with the Catholic Church, maybe that's why Germany was tolerant of them. They've been in power for eight years. You know, maybe they were, they were able to overlook some of the anti-German rhetoric or nature of that for, for a little bit. But eventually they decided, no, no, they've got to go. And maybe if this particular party learns the lesson from that and kind of comes away from this saying, well, we're not going to tangle with Germany in the future, we'll stick to some of our other policies, I could see them still having a role in this soon coming United States of Europe. But to have that role, they have to learn that Germany's in charge. And I think that is the lesson that this week really, really teaches. Mr. Armstrong, I referenced some of the things that he said. He said, it's probably none but a German that can provide the dynamic, inspired leadership required to organize such a political military federation. There's the quote Mr. Stephen Flurry plays quite a lot on the Trumpet Daily about Europe needs its heart to revive and its heart is in Germany. And you know, Mr. Armstrong was getting this from the Bible. The Bible prophesies this power rising in Europe. Revelation 10 says it's going to be an alliance of 10 kings. But other Bible prophecies talk about it being really led and influenced by Assyria, this name for Germany in biblical prophecy. So that's why we're looking for Germany to lead this alliance of 10 kings. And what's remarkable about this is so much of that is proven true already. Like you look at Europe right now and what is it? It's an alliance of kings 
led by Germany. And yet we're still looking to dot the I's and cross the T's on some of that. It's not 10 kings right now. There are 27 within the European Union. You can still see the outline of those 10 kings rising. We had an article from, from Mr. Flurry in the trumpet print earlier this year. But so much of that is already proven true. And Mr. Armstrong was saying you'll have Germany leading a European Union. He was saying that in 1945. When you look at the events of this week, you know, you have to say, well, how did he know that? How was he able to forecast that so accurately? And a great place to learn more about that is our Trends article, Why the Trumpet Watches the Rise of a German Strongman. And that tries to take you through very step by step what Mr. Armstrong said and how those conclusions are based on Bible prophecy. So Poland is getting stronger. It does have plenty of criticisms of Germany, Poles and the rest of the world vividly remember the fact that Poland was the first nation that Germany outright and overwhelmingly attacked in World War II. All of those things are true, and yet we're looking for something specific to happen for Germany to successfully extend its power over Poland and other nations there in the EU. So that was why the trumpet watches the rise of a German strongman. Richard Palmer, thanks for watching Europe. Now we move to Andrew Miller. Hello, Andrew. Hello. You have the job of covering merely the entire United States and the rest of Anglo-America and boiling it down to a few top stories and then a, one main story to focus in on. Give us a little rundown of the top stories from Anglo-America. Yeah, that boiling down process can be quite challenging some weeks. This week, a new Rasmussen poll indicated that one in five mail-in voters in the United States openly admit to cheating in the 2020 election. That is shocking. <laughs> House Republicans formalized their impeachment investigation into Joe Biden. So they're now proceeding with looking into Biden business family corruption with the support of a majority of the House of Representatives. And the U.S. Supreme Court decided to take up a January 6 case that could affect the future of the Trump prosecution process. So that 2020 election is just not going away. And I am shocked that did you say one in five people who were polled right. admitted that they did not cast a legal or an appropriate vote in the 2020 election? I haven't checked the sample size of the poll, but the Rasmussen poll is like one in five had openly indicated that they signature verification or something did yeah, something that they weren't supposed or, to right, have done. Right. That is stunning to me. That people not only did that, but then admitted to doing that. And, you know, this is an issue that you think could go away. I mean, as major as it is, the amount of power that pushed through, these are your official results from the 2020 election, and you are not allowed to challenge it. Supreme Court cases didn't go through. You know, it was an overwhelming amount of power and force to certify Joe Biden as the president of the United States, the winner of the 2020 election, that is not going away, though. And that's very interesting. You've got one main story, though. We always focus in on one big story from the region. So in all of Anglo-America, what's the biggest of the stories this week? The biggest story this week is just the mainstreaming of anti-Semitism in American academia. And, uh, the reason I bring this up, even above like the election fraud stuff this week, I mean, obviously the election fraud stuff I've talked about before, but like when you actually look at the level of this, it's not an exaggeration to say that this is like how German universities were talking in the 1920s and 30s. Congress has been on a roll this week in addition to formalizing the impeachment inquiry. 
They also passed a resolution on Wednesday condemning anti-Semitism on college campuses and calling for the presidents of Harvard and Massachusetts Institute of Technology to resign. Uh, you may have heard the week before, uh, just given the amount of students on Penn State University, um, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Harvard, that were openly calling for the genocide of Jews. They brought those the presidents of those three universities to Congress to testify uh, and really tried to just get them to answer the simple question, does calling for genocide break? college bylaws at Harvard, MIT, or Penn State. Uh, and none of the three presidents would answer an affirmative yes to that question. Uh, it was all like, well, it depends on contacts. It depends on whether there was uh, an actual threat of physical violence. But if like our students just want to say all the Jews should die and then don't actually act on that sentiment, uh, it could be protected speech. Well, this is really something I think we have the time for it. You really just have to hear the clip. I mean, the the congressional hearings are pretty long because they interview all three of these presidents. But this is Congress particularly questioning Liz McGill at Penn. Ms. McGill at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm going to give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. Okay, so I mean, you just heard that about like minute long back and forth between uh, this House committee and Liz McGill, uh, where I mean, they're just doubling down. It's like, it's like, just say that calling for genocide violates the Pennsylvania uh, University bylaws. And they won't do it. Uh, they won't do it. Uh, and um, the article we'll put in the show notes is actually our trumpet brief from yesterday. It's by um, our managing editor, Mr. Joel Hilliker, titled The Sickness in American Universities is Worse Than We Thought. And it really talks about here that like one of these three presidents was fired just because a donor threatened to pull like $100 million in funding. But the other two still have still kept their jobs. Uh, they're not even fired for refusing to condemn anti-Semitism. And it goes back into um, some of the history of like what happened in Germany in the 1930s uh, because it's, there's many cultures around the world where, especially amongst the less well-educated, racism, like prejudice, bigotry creeps in. 
Uh, but it said in Germany, it was actually like the intellectual elites who weren't just venting their frustration with a certain ethnic group, uh, but actually coming up with like full out economic and political theories about the reasons this ethnic group should be excluded from society, discriminated against, even sent to the gas chambers. Originally in those Jewish universities, it was more of an economic, it's like the Jews follow God's free market economic principles. They've been blessed for it. Uh, they were doing fairly well financially in Europe at the time, some of them. Uh, and so there was some envy against them that soon morphed into an outright biologically this people is inferior ideology. And you don't necessarily hear that biological inferiority argument made in U.S. universities just because uh, to the radical left, a biological racist is the worst thing you could be. Uh, but you do still see that um, we don't like the Judeo-Christian moral principles. We don't like Judeo-Christian economic principles. Uh, we don't like the um, Israeli state who's – because they're – they live alongside Palestinians who are oftentimes poorer than they are. Therefore, it must be their fault. Um, and it's um, – th this talk has been going around academia for a while. But it's finally starting to morph into this like a college student could say uh, you're a dirty Jew and you should die and not get in trouble for it at Harvard. Right. And how many microaggressions can you get in trouble for at Harvard at these other institutions, University of Pennsylvania, I think we said Penn State, but it's University of Pennsylvania where Liz McGill uh, was the president. You look at that, that is the leafy, you know, stone building, Ivy League, pinnacle university. These are the most prestigious of our universities. It's another Harvard. It's another Yale, you know, level university. And this is where you can get in trouble for, as I say, all kinds of microaggressions if you're not sufficiently supportive of sexual perversions, for example, or whatever it might be. And yet you can call for genocide of Jews and depending on the context, as they say, quote unquote, it might be protected speech. It might be appropriate. It might be something that does not violate their code of conduct. They don't have to. And, and as this uh, trumpet brief that you mentioned says, they're a university. Their rules are not the exact same as, you know, anything that's legal is allowable at our university. They have a stricter rules than that. And they can and should suspend people for, for calling for violence against a certain ethnic group. They openly refuse to do so. We've been saying that there's something sick and something wrong with these higher universities for some years now here at the Trumpet. This is your sign this week that that is full on. There is something very wrong, very wicked underneath the hood at the Ivy League universities and beyond. Yeah, again, I think um, Niall Ferguson, he'd written another article that we linked to in the um, Trumpet Brief uh, comparing – it's a good read – uh, comparing what's happening in American universities now with what was happening in German universities at the earliest part of the century and really making a strong case that like you can turn a blind eye to it or you can excuse it and you can argue that it's not that bad or the comments were taken out of context. Uh, but that's what people did in 1920 and it ended with the Holocaust Right. How does, how does a Holocaust happen, right? It's not like Adolf Hitler doesn't go around doing everything himself. 
he influences people, right? And and they have their own choice. The people of Germany of the 20s, especially the 30s, had their own choice on whether to believe that ideology, whether to think that this is uh, something that, that as I compare it to my rigorous training in anthropology or compare it to my rigorous training and my brilliant mind in religion or economics or, or the arts or, or the sciences, whether this is, you know, I, I adopt this uh, based on my brilliance. <laughs> and they were brilliant. I mean, those universities were brilliant, places of brilliant learning. And they churned out massive amounts of Adolf Hitler Nazi supporters. Right. And there's actually no evidence that Adolf Hitler himself was raised in an anti-Semitic household. Uh, He adopted that ideology during his time in Vienna, which was the cultural capital of Europe at the time. And so um, you really could say that like Adolf Hitler was a product of that education system. Uh, And so if you have these presidents um, in Harvard and and Penn – and uh, an MIT allowing this type of indoctrination to occur on their college campuses. You could be educating the next Adolf Hitler. So we'll keep this article in the show notes. It has a lot of good principles about just the dangers of human reasoning and will worship and vain intellectualism and all the stuff that's been in the American university campuses since the 60s that's now yielding this toxic fruit. I'd like to highlight a prophecy in Isaiah 9 verses 12 and 21, which is about the state of Israel, uh, the Jews in particular, where it says, the Syrians are before and the Philistines behind. They devour Israel with an open mouth. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim and Ephraim Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. And so anyone who's listened to this program for any period of time knows there's historical evidence that Ephraim is Britain in Bible prophecy and Manasseh is the United States. And so it's talking about Ephraim and Manasseh together being against Judah. It is a prophecy that even though America and Britain are Israelite nations themselves, there would be a problem with anti-Semitism. Anti is the Latin prefix for against and Semitism, even though it refers to people descended from Noah's son Shem more broadly is used specifically for the Jews in a modern context. So anti-Semitism is like against Judah. And Isaiah said that Ephraim and Manasseh would be against Judah. They would be anti-Semite. That anti-Semite always kind of muddies the waters for me a little bit. It should be anti-Jew, anti-Jewish. That's what the word is is intended to mean. That's how most people, how most people use it. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the anti-Semitism of, of Hitler. Obviously, he was motivated in an extremely unique way. There's uh, several Key of Davids by Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry about the the unique motivation that, that he had. Uh, but as you say there, there was a lot of education already there before he took power that he could draw from to develop the ideology that he had. And certainly after he had it and was spreading it, the German elites many of them accepted it, absorbed it, furthered it, participated in it. And so I think this is a lesson that we are not here at the end of 2023 too sophisticated for evil. In fact, the more sophistry we have, in many cases, the more evil we are. We have not left the lessons of the past behind necessarily, and you see the exact same things cropping up. I mean, in 1920, 1930, 
1940, that was the modern era. <laughs> that was the cutting edge for them. And they developed the origins of the Holocaust. What we're seeing now is troublingly, chillingly similar. That's all the time we have for Trumpet Hour this week. Uh, email us your thoughts as you have been doing. Thank you for emailing us at letters at the trumpet.com. We thank our panel for participating. We thank our engineers, Parker Campbell and Isaac Lorenz, for all of their efforts. And we thank you for listening to The Week in Review. We look forward to being back with you on Wednesday as Jeremiah Jacques brings you the next edition of Trumpet Hour.